You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Greetings and welcome to Domecast, the news and observer politics podcast. I'm Don Vaughn here with Danielle Battaglia, Will Doran, Lucille Sherman, and Colin Campbell. So today we're going to talk about uh, COVID kumbaya being over, as Representative Reeve said. Um, some about my reporting on the Senator Smith story, and then we'll end with uh, headliner of the week as usual. So to start us off, Lucille, you're the one that had the quote from Reeves about COVID kumbaya is over. What does he mean by that? Yeah, sure. So that quote was from the House floor debate um, yesterday, Thursday, May 29th, um, debating House Bill 536, which was the bill that would allow restaurants, bars, etc., to see customers outside. So the reason it was controversial was for two reasons. One, bars haven't been allowed to reopen yet. Um, and two, under Cooper's phase two orders. And then two, um, there was sort of a lot of talk about, is this bill sort of overriding the governor's orders? Um, so without getting too into the weeds on that, that was sort of the context of what they were talking about. Representative Reeves was sort of in the camp that can't we put sort of a safety switch in this bill that allows the governor to take action and reverse this if there's a second spike in cases. Um, And that really, it turned into a pretty big debate about a lot of other things like, I don't know, freedom and lots of other stuff. Every piece of science about coronavirus was debated in detail. Yeah, so Representative Reeves sort of towards the end of his spiel said, I know the COVID kumbaya is over. I couldn't hear him very well, but I think he might have said, and that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and he's just resigned to the fact that, like, yes, they all agreed on the original coronavirus package back in late April, and it was all bipartisan and great and everything, but... um, now they're back to, you know, sparring along partisan lines. Just that, like old times. Getting back to normalcy. That's the joy. That's the, as usual. that's the joy of our political system. Yeah. You know, if everybody agrees all the time, like, what's, where's the fun in that? But yeah. does anyone remember me forecasting that last week? Oh, yeah, you totally did. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We've yeah. been saying that for sure. <laughs> well, and this one was a funny one. It's Lucille, so you covered this bill when it first surfaced as a surprise bill in, like, I think it was the Senate Commerce Committee or something. Yeah, it was young. And, like, yeah. it wasn't controversial originally, and it just, like, got more and more controversial over the course of this week. But that's because of Cooper's decision. Yeah. Because everyone thought it was going to only be about outdoor seating, which seems reasonable. Well, maybe. I don't know. And it was, yeah, and it was explained that way because you you and I were both confused about the bill at one point as to whether it would really undo the Cooper executive order. So you went and talked to Gunn and found out. Right. So last week, I think it was Wednesday of last week, it was just heard in committee. And it flew through Commerce and rules committee this week and colin and i were sort of like this seems this this bill which was a pair of bills then mentions bars are they just going to ignore that fact they very much did ignore that fact um and i went to ask gun about it and i was like so what would happen with bars under this nothing until cooper does something and he was like oh no they would reopen too um so conveniently. yeah conveniently <laughs> so i thought it was super interesting that it sort of just slid through all of the committees and then of course as i predicted it sort of ramped up once it hit the floor and people realized what was coming. Oh, yeah. And even, but even in the Senate, it was, what, five Democrats who voted no initially? The rest were supportive of it. But then when we got to the House, 
Cooper know, had yeah, Cooper had weighed in against it. Darren Jackson, the House Democratic leader, gave a long speech, and so most of his caucus sort of fell in line, and it became nearly a party line vote. So was it in the Senate, since y'all were there, was it all Republican support? And then who were the Democrats supporting? So it was all Republican support and all Democrats except for Wiley Nickel, uh, Robinson? Yeah, I think Blue, uh, Blue, Blue might have uh, voted against it. Uh, Wiley Nickel was one of the ones who spoke against it and basically said something to the effect of, this is taking away the governor's powers and I'm not okay with that. Then what about the other Democrats that supported it, though? I mean, did they... Well, I think, um, so one of them was um, Senator Natasha Marcus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I'm new here, so I have to remember names. She was one of the legislators who stood up and said, I'm pretty torn about this bill, but I think it's really important that we sort of help our small businesses. And if this is the only way that we're going to be able to do that, then fine. I'm going to support it. So this is, I mean, this is significant, right? Because these are Democrats checking their Democratic governor. Yeah. Right. And I think some of the concern was the two pieces of the bill, because I think originally when it was separate, the two separate bills, you had the restaurant bill that would let restaurants seat more people outside. That wasn't really controversial at any stage, I think, because that sort of was more or less in keeping with what the governor had already done. The controversial piece was definitely bars. It came down to this one thing. And I think originally, I think that Gunn separated the two in the first place because he knew that was coming. But so many people advocated for it being a combined bill that it turned into. I thought he was separate because he wasn't sure how much alcohol support from some of the other senators or representatives. Well, totally. Yeah, Yeah. I think that may have been part of it too. Um, But at the end, it seemed like it was... There, the hope was that they could get Cooper to support it by putting in the restaurant piece because the restaurant association has lobbied really hard for this. And I honestly, uh, some of the other folks in the, the press corps were speculating on this. Of Were the senators more willing to go against the governor because some of them have tough races and need support and funding from the restaurant lobby? And they know that it's a House bill, so if Cooper vetoes it, the House would have to be the first to override. And if the override never gets to the Senate, the senators never have to go on record as to whether they're going against the governor on an override vote, which they're generally fairly reluctant to do. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of fun political calculus in this because, like I said, we're back to business as usual in the political world. Well, also, people are out of work. And, and it's a valid question to say, you know, what's the difference between, like, a you know, the same group of people just drinking in a restaurant versus versus a bar. And the fact that, like, the, you know, Superintendent Johnson had asked for clarity in the executive order. It was before winery, when our last stonecast. Like, wineries, breweries, distilleries, it wasn't even clear where that was. But then that's okay. But then, and it is kind of like, you know, you need to, like, have just explain exactly, exactly what these parameters are. And part, I think there's just too much crossover of what, bars, restaurants, and breweries look like physically. Yeah, you know, there's so much a variance people. in the bar wor- world of, you know, there's the places where people pack shoulder to shoulder and dance. No singing, there, right. Yeah, no and there's the places you dancing, sit at a table and get no service. Mingling. That's what they said. Right. Yeah. So this all gets to sort of like the bigger picture of more drama <laughs> that yeah. we've had, especially in the last week. So it goes beyond that bill, which we're not really sure if Cooper will sign it or not, but it really is reflective of sort of the partisan divide happening, even though it didn't happen until the afternoon of Thursday. And Cooper well, can still decide to do something else with the order, so, and then veto it because of this, or sign it because of this, or Yeah, there's whatever. a lawsuit by the bars that was filed, I think, Wednesday or Thursday, 
that could play into this whole process because if they if they get an injunction like the churches did and are allowed to reopen, then Cooper might feel comfortable signing this bill because the rest of it would then be something he might support um, if that particular point was moved. So he may wait um, or he may have signed or vetoed or he may have vetoed this by the time this podcast comes out. No way of knowing from which is why politics is great. Yeah, <laughs> Lucille and I found out because the vibe in the Senate was so weird yesterday morning um, and we were trying to figure out what was going on. The Democratic caucus apparently has been meeting only through, I think, WebEx or one of those platforms. And they said, like, some of them can't hear on it. Some of them are having issues. So they've not really been able to connect on a good level to say this is how we want to respond to like so and so's Mm -hmm. bill. And so we were watching them come up with how they were going to respond on the Senate floor delaying the Senate from starting 15 minutes early. So it was interesting to just even see that process of them like panicking, trying to figure out yeah. what was going well, on. Well, and in general, you see, a, you know, if there's a, something about the governor's powers, like he's got a lobbyist who's in the building all the time. But I think because the Cooper administration is dealing with so much else, you know, COVID-19 related, they didn't have their usual, you know, send somebody down to the legislative building and tell the Democrats how to vote type operation. And so there was more confusion about that than there normally would be. It was... Yesterday morning was weird. It was we, weird. <laughs> everyone was gathered sort of in clusters throughout yeah. the chamber. And we were just, it even felt like weird in the room. Yeah. Um, it was a we strange were taking time. pictures of them gathered around computer screens and saying like, how long is this affected? Is it affected till October 30th? And I wasn't totally sure, or maybe it was October 1st, but I wasn't totally sure what was going on and what they were panicking about. Yeah. We got it in been other weird stuff this week. I mean, the the budget process is starting, but in a really weird, unorthodox way because you've got this uh, the budget constraints of a you know four billion dollar shortfall. So instead of doing a single budget bill, they're doing another round of I think last year we called them piecemeal budgets and mini budgets. So it's budget you know, bites. Yeah, an individual piece of funding. So this week we were doing they were doing. Uh, funding for law enforcement emergency communications network upgrades, a new steam plant at Western Carolina University, um, some money for new juvenile detention facilities for part of the raids of the age thing. Um, and I was curious about this because it seemed like you know it might be more efficient if they just put all that in one bill and passed one bill like they always do. So I asked um, Senate Majority Leader and Budget Writer Harry Brown, you know, is this what y'all did last year? Are you doing it again to avoid a veto from the governor over like one provision that he doesn't like in this budget. And he said pretty much that his exact <laughs> words were pretty much. Um, so I think, you know, right now we're not at this point yet because these budget bills so far have been non-controversial, but particularly as we get through the summer and there's the potential budget cuts, if federal money can't be used to fill some of the budget holes, you're going to see some partisan fighting over that um and i like the way that harry brown's like yeah pretty much because he's one of those people <laughs> that uh, who's not running for an election and right. i like how like some people are a little freer with uh what they want to say like to us and to each other oh yeah and they would be um if they weren't running for an election yeah pretty much <laughs> pretty much pretty much harry brown pretty yeah much. so i think we're you know we're, we're not quite at the budget battle stage yet but we're getting there um and then the other I think what got less attention this week because we all were focused on bars and COVID and various other things was the uh, DOT inquisition that went on in three different days of committee meetings that Danielle was, um, you know, very diligent about attending and covering all of them for the insiders. So what was the deal there? I mean, it seemed like there was a lot of Cooper versus the legislature tension specific to DOT and then Beth Wood is involved, which throws a whole new... Well, so the DOT obviously has 
been found for overspending $742 million. Their employees will be going into, they're so like, the executives and managers, I think, are already furloughed right now, but the employees start tomorrow, so Saturday, on their furloughs. And uh, basically, the Senate was grilling um, State Auditor Beth Wood and then um, State Treasurer Dale Falwell and um, and then um, help me with the name. DOT Secretary Eric Boyette and the State Board of Transportation Chairman, whose name I don't remember, Simon Fox. And... Perusi, am I yeah, saying that right? Charles, the Charles Perusi, the budget director. Oh, yeah. So basically, um, what basically what most people are saying is we want to move the the DOT's budget out of their control because they're grossly overspending, and we want to move it over to OSBM. And OSBM basically came back yesterday and was like, "I don't want it," which is more like they said we want to be part of the solution, but. If we take it over, we're putting a band-aid on a problem that's much bigger and we need to work together to figure out um, basically how they can do this themselves and keep it under their own control. They do have new leadership in there. So that's one thing. Um, uh, Boyette's only been in there, I think, since February. And so he hasn't even had time to like deal with this problem himself. Um, and Beth Wood's been very gracious saying like she's never had a, a agency handle and audit the way they have and that they've been very receptive to her critiques and everything but she is saying she's going to audit their auditors audits because they do have 14 auditors they're supposed to have 25 auditors they can't recruit the extra 11 um people just don't want the job and so there's been some why would this woman be an auditor that sounds thrilling I mean, I would love that job knowing how well I am at math. <laughs> um, but so she uh, she basically said that she's heard from some people that they put out 400 audits since 2016 and others are saying, no, we haven't put out a single audit. So she's going to go find those audits and see what they've been auditing. Wait, why are they so low on auditors? Is it really just recruiting? Yeah, even Dale Falwell said to them yesterday that it is impossible right now to recruit auditors for state jobs. So, so if you're out of work right now, yeah. go get trained to be an auditor and you'll find some it's state calling government. people out with numbers if you're into those things. I know. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> Beth Wood seems to love Lucille. it. Lucille. <laughs> yeah. Don't leave us, but you should go be an auditor. <laughs> so I think I think that was it in a nutshell. Yeah. But yeah. I guess we're going to see legislation coming out soon. House so. Speaker Tim Moore mentioned it yesterday to Increase oversight. Um, Senate Leader Phil Berger is talking about changing how the State Board of Transportation is appointed. It's all, the governor gets to pick all of them right now. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like there could be a move to give some of those appointments to the legislature, which I'm going to go out on a limb and guess the governor is not going to think is a great idea. I know Wood, Parisi, and um, Falwell all came up with like, like, here's what I think you should do. Here's the like, they bullet pointed their like proactive approach to fixing this problem. And so the, the senators for sure have stuff to look at since they've been sitting in those meetings. A handful of them, not all of them. <laughs> so is that it for partisanship this week yeah. and COVID kumbaya being over? Yeah, you know, the only, you know, our sort of thesis on this, the only outlier seems to be the elections bill that Will covered. But I feel like there was still some Partisan infighting over that, even though they all voted for it, it just it was, pieces of the debate I heard sounded like there were some concerns about voter ID being a component of this. So never, not everyone was really a hundred percent happy, even though they voted for it. Is that accurate, Will? That's more or less accurate. Yeah. Um, although it was kind of a you know 
a bit refreshing amid all of this partisan angst that we've been talking about here this week, uh, you know, to see this bill go through with basically almost unanimous support on a pretty divisive topic, which is, uh, you know, expanding absentee by mail voting. Uh, you know, at the federal level, you've seen uh, President Donald Trump spouting off all sorts of conspiracy theories about how he believes that, you know, there will be widespread fraud with by mail voting. Uh, to be clear, there's really no evidence for any of that. Uh, no one really who has looked at these issues believes that's true. However, there are a lot of people who obviously believe the president uh, when he says these things. Um, but then here you have, you know, a Republican controlled legislature acting to expand absentee by mail voting. Um, and this is really all due to coronavirus fears. Of course, um, state officials say, you know, usually maybe four or 5% of North Carolinians vote by mail. They're expecting it could be 30 or even 40% in November, depending on, you know, one, how bad coronavirus actually is, and two, how, you know, fearful people still are of uh, contracting it. Um, and so there was this pretty sweeping bill to make it easier to request uh, mail-in ballots, make it easier to actually get that ballot done uh, by basically slashing the uh, the requirements for witnesses who have to, you know, watch you vote the ballot from two people to one people. Um, all sorts of other, you know, kind of loosening of rules and restrictions and, you know, provision on figuring out how to like safely send teams into nursing homes, you know, if we're still in the midst of this pandemic in November, uh, you know, to help people who are in nursing homes, uh, you know, be able to fill out their ballots. Um, just a lot of pretty wide ranging stuff. Um, ended up passing the House 116 to three. Um, but like you referenced Colin, you know, that doesn't really explain the whole picture. A lot of Democrats had some serious complaints with the bill. Uh, some of them wanted uh, to make Election Day a holiday, which is kind of a Democratic wish list item uh, that's been around for years. They say it's especially important this year because of coronavirus, um, but that didn't make it into the bill. Um, talked to uh, uh, one of the Republican sponsors, Holly Grange, about that, and she said that is something that they had actually originally considered, um, but then took out the Election Day as a holiday after talking to uh, some of the Republican leaders in the Senate and being informed that that would be a deal breaker for them. Um, there are some other things that Democrats didn't really like. You know, it, uh, it prevents North Carolina from going to an all-male election like some states out west have. Um, but in the end, only three Democrats voted against it. Um, uh, Amos Quick was one of them in Greensboro, and he, uh, he referenced uh, some voter ID provisions in the bill that he said it was just, you know, seemed to be a completely partisan thing since we don't really have a voter ID law in place right now due to the, you know, court rulings. Um, and he didn't think that this was the, the right place to be talking about voter ID. So he voted against it. A couple of the Democrats voted against it. Um, but in the end, you know, basically near bipartisan support, you heard both Republicans and Democrats saying, like, you know, we're very proud of ourselves for actually being able yeah. to come, come together and do something bipartisan right now. Like, you know. Yeah. And, you know, here's my prediction on that. I think it goes to the Senate next week and... Uh, Senate leader Phil Berger, when I talked to him about this issue of absentee voting, he's very concerned about anything that he thinks loosens up the protections against a ninth district sort of situation. So I would not be at all surprised if there's some changes made in the Senate, even though they sort of, I think, pre-discussed and debated this issue. They did, And then yeah. when it comes back to the House, you may see a few more no votes from some of the Democrats if some of the 
the more democratic wish list provision to get chopped off there before the final version. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But, um, you know, the at least the, the version that we've seen in the House right now was written, like you said, in consultation with the Senate and also with the State Board of Elections, uh, which obviously is, uh, you know, uh, part of the Cooper administration. Um, so State Board of Elections seems to be uh, fairly happy with what's in it. Again, they didn't get, you know, necessarily quite everything they wanted, but they got a lot of what they've been asking for, especially in terms of funding. There's, I mean, there's millions of dollars in this bill to go towards not just, you know, preparing for more mail-in ballots and hiring, you know, all everything you need for that, but also, you know, increased cybersecurity, increased, you know, public health provisions, like buying more hand sanitizer and stuff like that for people who are going to still be voting in person. So um, I think there's a, a lot of urgency to, to get this passed because, you know, everyone thinks that elections in 2020 are going to be kind of weird and different from your normal presidential election. So I think that covers this week's action at the legislature on a partisan basis, but there feels like the, the fun in fighting is um, not limited to between the parties. It's, it's within one of the parties, as Dawn wrote this week in her story, going very much in depth with a lot of allegations from Democratic Senator Erica Smith of Northampton County, former candidate for U.S. Senate, uh, who has accused uh, several of her colleagues of sexual harassment, um, sort of abusive behavior. There's some police reports that go along with it. There's a concern about the ethics complaint process in the legislature, uh, perhaps not being as effective as it should be. Um, since we could spend an entire podcast going into the details of the story, if you haven't read it, um, go read it on News Observer's website because um, there's a lot of really fascinating uh, stuff in there. But for our podcast audience, I think would be interesting to get behind the scenes of how this story came about and some of the um, stuff that we've witnessed, you know, in the legislative building as, as these allegations have been going around. So Dawn, kind of give us a little bit of the, the background here. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody does like quick hit stories here and there, but when you have something, especially when it's really serious and want to spend time um, doing an in-depth, you know, investigative project on a story, um, you, it's, it's so much more that goes into like, which isn't what you read, you know, there's so many, so much more reporting. So, um, so many more conversations, so many more documents to sort through all kinds of stuff that isn't in the final. So that story that you read was actually long and had a lot of stuff in it. Um, and there's minor things in there and sidetrack stuff that, you know, wasn't relevant in the end to this final story. Um, yet anyway, I'll do plenty of follow-ups, um, about, um, you know, what's at the core of, of this complaint, of this process, of the people involved. Um, and it came through, so this was in partnership with ProPublica, and it came from um, um, from Smith's camp, um, initially contacting ProPublica and, and passed between reporters there and a national politics reporter. Um, and she went because it ended up being more of a state story. So they were looking for an investigative reporter in North Carolina that could take it. Um, and look at it um, from, you know, the North obviously the issues are much broader than just the state, um, but is more someone that's more inside, um, literally inside North Carolina and government. Um, so that's where I, I took over um, after the initial documents and initial, initial reporting from ProPublica and talked to, contacted, oh, I mean, maybe 20 people more, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was a lot. Um, and some lessons here that if you happen to, you know, be at the legislature and see me wait at the door for some people, 
Um, and they ran out before, or I followed them out the door and circled the chamber asking them for things, all while wearing masks because this is also a pandemic. Uh, most of the people involved are Democrats, so they all had masks on and conversations were on the phone or socially distant. So it was low risk um, from a COVID standpoint on that. Um, but what was really important to me, especially when something is serious and when you're talking about documents and, and potential um, legal implications and uh, is to have have like really ironclad everything and, and have people confirm things on the record and corroborate things on the record and see all the documents and then see additional documents and then ask other people about the documents and then call and um, email and in person if needed to talk to people and really for lawmakers and staff and those folks listening, you know, if we contact you, I really don't want to have to wait at the floor door to get you to respond to me. That is actually not something reporters enjoy. Um, and you'll be better off if you have some time to think about your response instead of us running after you in the building. But we want to hear your response, so we will run after you if we have to. Right. So, you know, and I'm I'm give everyone like a chance. Some people I gave like over a week to respond, you know. Yeah. And, you know, call me back or email me back. And if you want to say, I don't want to say anything, then that is better than just the sort of freezing out of like, you know, and, and my job and all of our jobs here um, is to hold those in power accountable. And that's what we're going to do. Um, so it, it never really works out for you to um, just pretend you didn't hear it. Just answer us and, you know, or I'll look for you um, you know, in the building to try to get some sort of response. And it's also for you too, you know, I'm being fair to you. I'm giving you an opportunity to say, you know, this is something that has you in it or is said about you. And, you know, I'm giving you the opportunity to say, to say what you want to say about this too. So I'm doing, this is a phrase I use with a lot of people I talk to. I'm doing my due diligence here and giving everyone the opportunity to say something, you know, if they want. And so that was easier um, said than done with, with some people in this, again, because, you know, not everybody always wants to talk to us with what we're coming to um, talk to you about. Um, but um, anyway, I appreciate everyone who got back to me quickly or, um, you know, told me everything I needed or, or helped me, um, you know, explore another direction to find out more um things on this and and again what you read is always you know just part of what um what all of the extensive reporting um that was done for this story and, and there'll be more for on on really multiple fronts um with different aspects of individual lawmakers of the process of this legislative ethics committee which is just lawmakers evaluating other lawmakers um, and is that the best way to do this? And um, what do you do when somebody's a state worker, not a state employee, um, and has a complaint? And how is that sorted out? So there's a whole lot of things at play here. Um, and hopefully in the end, there'll be, I would like to see some public good um, come out of it for, um, you know, people in the future, for for all North Carolinians. And yes, there's a flag waving behind me in the background yeah. <laughs> as I say that. Um, <laughs> But that really is why we do this. Can you talk more about why this story was important right now and sort of the context of the bigger picture, you know, with this story and why it was important? I mean, I, I don't think it's any more important today than it was yesterday or will be tomorrow or 10 years ago or, you know, or 10 years from now. Um, 
But um, it's really that you need to have, if, if something is, um, you know, I quote former Senator Ford in the story about, you know, him talking to Senator Smith about her complaint and him understanding, you know, why, um, you know, she, does, she doesn't feel like she was heard. So this is why she took this um, public. And how you know things will will come to the surface, hopefully one way or another. If there, um, if something isn't you know following what it could in an ideal situation of, of people needing recourse or or something like that. So um, obviously this has been around for a while. If this is the situation, um, and you know maybe there'll be some some change in the future um, as far as just, you know, within the building, how, how this kind of thing is handled and who gets to decide how it's handled, I think. Is, yeah. You is know, what strikes me about this story is that, you know, we're hearing about this because this is a, the person making the accusations is a elected state senator and is one who is not seeking reelection, at least not to her, her current post. So her, mm-hmm. her term ends and she's, she's gone from the state Senate, but you don't hear similar things from lower level staffers, lobbyists, other people, who don't have the power to come forward and there's really no process for them that could be sort of something other than lawmakers adjudicating things like there's not a revision and there's been recommendations for it in the past for some sort of an independent investigator to come in when a complaint is filed about misbehavior sexual harassment things of that nature um and mm-hmm. you know this maybe will spark some more conversation around what does that process need to look like so that you don't have to be a state senator who's not working on political ambitions to be comfortable enough to come out and say this stuff publicly and go through a process. People who are just a legislative assistant or just a lobbyist who encounters a powerful lawmaker and they misbehave in some way will have some sort of recourse and some sort of fair process investigation to go through so that people are held accountable. Well, you know, and when I talked to Senator, you know, Terry Van Dyne, um, and again, it's interesting people that will talk more freely um, if they're running for election or not. Van Dyne, you know, narrowly lost the primary for lieutenant governor, so she's not running for her Senate seat again. You know, and I, I had a lot more from Ford, who's no longer in the Senate. Um, but then other people that don't work in the in the building anymore, you know, sometimes people just don't want to be part of something. They, they don't want to air this or whatever. And they have plenty of thoughts about it, but they just don't want to do it. And whether or not they or like with no political reasons at all, they just don't want to. And that's your prerogative to do that you know um but van dyne said that you know it's all about the the legislature is all about power dynamics and you can make someone's job more difficult with what committee you assign them to because then what can they do for their constituents and i mean this is just something like you know with all all politics and and part of it is just the nature of state government being i don't know just so different than if you look at local government and how much um just a smaller scale and everyone on the ground um versus when you're taking you know i mean it's just 50 people in the senate but like 120 you know in the house and that's just a lot of people in that building and just how everything runs and it's there's a lot of secretive stuff going on which you which i was frankly surprised about after covering local government i was like what do you like you know I, Durham City Council, I'd be like, oh, no, I don't have the agenda seven days before instead of three days before where you go into a committee meeting and like the PCS is printed and you don't even get one. If like the sergeant in arms gives it to you and I'm like, what is this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. The process is so screwy, but has been that way for so many decades. Sometimes it's easy to get jaded by it and mm-hmm. not, you know, call it out as much as you know you should. And 
yeah. I think it's important that we, we as journalists be the ones to do that because they can't really retaliate against us because our bosses are not in that building. Well, calling calling people out is part of, part yeah, of, our, part job of our job and transparency and, and you know, and where we are, they represent the people, you know, because they're elected um, or the people that vote anyway that uh, in their district. Um, but, um, you know, the, the press represents the public um, and that's who we're, we're trying to look out for and who, um, you know, shine the light on the stuff that's going on that is all you know, taxpayer funded, you know, we're taxpayers just like all of you are, so. On that note, shall we take a break and come back with our Headliners of the Week? I feel inspired now. Headliners of the Week, coming up. All right. Welcome back to Domecast. It's time for Headliner of the Week. And before we do this week's, uh, it's time to look at the poll from last week's Headliner. And our winner was Lucille for suggesting the uh, I turned it on the poll, bad COVID data site, but the new DHHS uh, data dashboard that was uh, less than we'd hoped it to be. Yes. Um, so Lucille went for that with a whopping 48% of the vote. Apparently a lot of people agree with you about this data site. How um, many people? Yeah, how many people? I can't, I'd have to do some math. We have 33 votes total, so whatever half oh, of that okay. is. Okay. Um, huh. Followed closely, more. not so closely, by phase two confusion. In second place, Wooner in third, and Quarantine Gratitude in last place. Why are you at the bottom always? <laughs> I'm trying to find positivity and bright lights and happy rainbows in the midst of darkness. Yeah. It's a good way to be, but apparently no one agrees with you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> All right, Colin, All right. what's your headliner? All right, so this week I am going with delivery robots, which was a lesser, you know, covered topic at the legislature this week. There's a bill going through the Senate uh, sponsored by Senator Jim Perry um, that would create new regulations and registration and some safety measures for uh, delivery robots, which are exactly what they sound like. They are robots that can go along sidewalks and roads. Um, they're manned remotely, so someone's monitoring them, but they're essentially sort of like autonomous vehicles. And they roll up to your front porch and they drop off a package and then they roll back. And uh, the video I saw of FedEx's ones that they're rolling out have, have uh, the front of the robot is emblazoned with the word hello, which is kind of oh, creepy no. when it rolls up your front stoop. Um, but I guess that could be the wave of the future and North Carolina is gonna be ready with it for regulations uh, if this bill passes. How so, does it get upstairs? And what about when dogs chase it? I don't know about dogs. I, apparently it can sense the stairs and it Something. goes up the stairs. It like has a way to do that. Um, have you seen the creepy ones? I that forget. is super creepy. Have you yeah. seen the creepy ones? I forget what country they are, but they're only legs in this like circle body, but there's no like head and they like climb kind of like- They look like dogs. They're like marching, like yeah. kind of Hitler style. Hard pass. Yeah. People may watch those versions and want to tweak this bill in the future. So anyway, delivery robots, my picks. Don. <laughs> My pick is related to what we're doing right now. We're in the Newsroom Observer newsroom on Fayetteville Street. Our newsroom isn't back. It's you know, occasionally a few people very distant. I don't masks are here. Just to remind you all that we are recording this separate and with masks. So anyway, since we are here, our uh, break room looks out on what was a fountain because fountains are great and there's no fountain anymore. There's just asphalt. And it's going to be a... a Concrete, nothing. Anyway, so um, you can see my picture of it if you can look, look at my Twitter account. But um, the best was a respond, the response on Twitter um, from someone that goes by Pine Tree, 
Which I think is secretly her dog who It likes doesn't pine. it doesn't say Old North uh, State Pine Tree. Anyway, there this person's take is uh, <laughs> I never know what to think of at that plaza. It's like you crossed one block and went into the future. It's like a patio, but cars are driving on it. There's weird shiny metal statues that look like they're from space. Restaurants are half building and half concession stand. There's a spot with fake grass. Music is playing softly from in the speakers. There's a bar that makes you wear a Fitbit and pour your own beer. I don't know about that last part, but the rest of this person's take, I would say, is spot on. So my headliner of the week is uh, RIP City Plaza Fountain. Wait, I have a question because I only worked here. Well, I've worked here like five to six months now, but only worked here for two months before we got shut down. Where was their grass? I don't remember. Oh, no, it's right outside between Crema and the new building next door. Oh, there yeah, is. Yeah, they, the uh, they used to turn into an ice skating rink at winter. <gasps> oh, was that where the skating rink Yeah, they would take the grass out and put an ice skating rink on top they of it. They can't figure out what to do with City Plaza. It's I just weird right here. I skated there one year because I love the acorn drop and the travel from the triad to the acorn drop because... I don't know what the triad's doing, but they need it up there. The mayor had a great point about City Plaza that it went from the city's living room when it first opened and was super nice to the city's rumpus room. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of not as as functional as it used to be. Isn't she the reason we don't have a water fountain? It's not so great, you know. (laughs) She did not like that water fountain. That's what I thought. It could be be different, you know. Speaking of different... (laughs) I, um, my headliner of the week is going to be the um, COVID kumbaya, which really, now that I think about it, is kind of negative because we're getting rid of it. But I teased that last week and Lucille can't vote and it was her favorite quote. So I'm taking it this week. Y'all vote for it because it's a cool phrase. Well, and it's over. It's <laughs> I know, that's where it gets dark. I didn't think this through. <laughs> I'm going to lose again. I know, I thought you were all Sunshine and Rainbows headliner. No one likes Sunshine and Rainbows. That's what I learned this week. Y'all go back to being negative. Well. Well. All right, my headliner is Tallywhacker, which is the uh, lead plaintiff in a lawsuit filed by a bunch of different strip clubs against uh, Governor Cooper over his uh, coronavirus shutdown that has been affecting their business. Um, You know, you can't really have a socially distant strip club. That just doesn't work. Um, And so they have sued, asking uh, to be exempted from this order. And I'm just going to uh, laugh so hard if this ever, you know, like, (laughs) leads to some sort of, like, rule or determination you know we've got you know your your miranda rights your jingles test and you know maybe oh, now we'll have the uh the tallywhacker rule uh so that is my headliner of the week and please if you're innocent don't google it all right well thanks for listening to this round of domecast i'm don vaughn for danielle battaglia will doran lucille sherman and colin campbell we'll see you next time You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.